That's the question I'm posing for you today, coming from Psalm chapter 1. Which way are you going? See, despite what some people think, not all roads lead to God. See, in life there's actually two paths. There's, there's two roads, if you will. There's the highway and the low way. Every person's life. And by the way, ultimately their destiny and your destiny is marked by the choice that you make regarding the way that you go. Choices do have consequences. And so each of us needs then to choose wisely then, don't we? If our choices have consequences, we must choose wisely. Decisions will determine destinies. And so the road that you choose is going to mark the course of your life. By the way, it's not just for the here and now, not just for your present life. It's also for all eternity. It's crucial that we get this right. So Psalm 1 shows us here the difference between these two paths of life. See, there's one road that leads to blessing, and the other road leads to the exact opposite, which is to curse. One leads to salvation, the other leads to destruction. And when you put it that way, you might wonder, why is it that Jesus said in, in, uh, in Matthew that broad or wide is the way that leads to destruction? Few there be that find the narrow way to eternal life. It's what they choose. It's what they choose. So my friends, we need to take note here. There's only two roads in life. Two roads in life. There's the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly. I'm getting those two paths, by the way, from verse 6. Psalm 1, verse 6 talks about that the Lord knows the way of the righteous or the way of the godly, but the way of the wicked will perish. So there's two that are contrasted here in this chapter. The way of the godly and the way of the ungodly. And they lead to two opposite destinies. Of course, the way of the godly leads to life, and the way of the ungodly leads to death. We're going to look at both of these contrasted here in this chapter. And this is, this is a great way to be starting the year 2016. As we think about uh, what would God have us to do this year, uh, let me just encourage you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ alone, that uh, this is the path you need to continue to walk. And it's not going to be an easy path. It is a hard road. Jesus says it's narrow. Few there be that find it. It doesn't mean that you're going to be a prosperous, wealthy, healthy, and all that sort of thing just because you're following Jesus. In fact, Jesus said it's probably going to be very hard in this life. This life is not your best life now. The one to come is. But for you unbeliever, let me tell you this. You're on the road to destruction. You're on this ungodly path. And it doesn't end well. Your best life is now. But there is hope. While you're still alive, there's still hope. You can get off this path. And you can join the way of the godly. And I trust and I hope and I pray you will. But let's start by looking at the way of the godly. The way of the godly in verses 1 through 3. Let's start reading Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. First thing I want you to see as we think about the way of the godly here is they're happy in the Lord. The godly are happy in the Lord. Now, your translation probably doesn't say happy, but the word blessed has this idea of being happy, and not not happy in a worldly sense, by the way. So I guess to kind of help you understand this, let me just give you what one commentator said in regards to this word blessed. I quote, This psalm begins with the emphatic declaration that God's abundant favor will rest on the person who lives a truly God-centered life. In the original Hebrew language, the word blessed is repeated. This is the Hebrew method of indicating the plural, intensifying its meaning. Thus the phrase should read, Oh, oh, how very happy, or the happinesses, or... Oh, the blessednesses. End quote. So, you can probably see why we have it translated in English this way. Because that's kind of awkward, isn't it? But do you get the point? Even though it's awkward, it shows the, the emphatic usage of the word blessed. So the idea is it's an overflowing joy. It's a full contentment. You say, well, where is that kind of happiness found? The verse doesn't mention it, but the Psalter tells us where this kind of blessedness or happiness is found. And it's it, the soul finds its satisfaction in God Himself, the way God made you. He says so in places like Psalm 16, verse 11. Look at this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21, verse 6 has the same idea. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. We could keep going, folks. But do you get the point? God has made you to find your joy, your happiness, your contentment and satisfaction in him and in him alone. And so if you keep trying to find it somewhere else, you're never going to be blessed. Number two, this is the way of the godly. They are separated from the world. They're separated from the world. Now, we need to be careful here. The Bible is not talking about being separated from planet Earth. When it says the world, it's not referring to this globe we live on. The world is this system that we live in. So it's like Jesus said, you know, don't, you don't separate, in one sense, you don't separate yourself from the world. Because Jesus said it this way, you're in the world, you're just not of the world. It's like a ship in the water, right? It's okay for the ship to be in the water. The problem is when the water gets in the ship, that's when the ship sinks. And that's the way it is with the world. And, so, and the, the psalmist here is pointing that out. And so you can see the godly person 
here in what they don't practice. Let's think of the negative things, and then we'll see some positive things, okay? First of all, the godly refuse secular philosophies and humanistic values. And we see that in verse 1 when it talks about, uh, where, where it says, Blessed is this man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And so if you want to be godly then, that means you're not walking in the counsel of the wicked. That just means you're going to refuse the worldly philosophies. You're not going to be pressed into the world's mold, as Romans 12.2 says. You're not going to think of the same way as their philosophies and their humanistic values. See, the, the idea of humanism is basically you're worshiping yourself. You're worshiping yourself. You worship humanity. And so uh, a godly person refuses that worldview that puts man at the center of the universe. Wrong. <laughs> it's wrong because God is the center. And so if you have a different standard of morality, then you're godly. A godly person is going to have a different standard of morality. They're going to pursue different pleasures than the ungodly. And number two, the godly refuse sensual behavior. They refuse sensual behavior because they're not standing in the way of sinners, verse 1 says. So a righteous person is, is not standing in the way of sinners. By the way, notice the progression here. Very interesting progression in verse 1 because it goes from you're, you're walking along and then you're no longer just walking along with the, the world. Now, now you're standing with them and, and conversing with them. And then it moves on to, uh, you're not just standing with them, now you're sitting with them. So there's that progression of, of getting worse and worse here. And it goes from, from not just that progression, but the progression of moving from the wicked to the sinners. And then, you, then you end up scoffing at God. So that also gets a worse progression. So number two, the godly refuse the sensual behavior of this world. Godly people resist the lure of the crowd to participate in their carnal activities and their sensual way of life. You're going to stand out if you're a godly person. After all, Jesus said you are light. You are salt. That's what you are. And number three, the godly refuse to associate with those who scoff at God. Some Bible translations use the word mock. These, these mockers. We're, we're not supposed to be sitting in the seat of these mockers. In other words, you're not joining in their affairs as they mock God and scoff at God and His ways. And so, a godly person avoids close relationships. Notice I said close relationships with these blasphemers, these infidels, these atheists. It doesn't mean you shouldn't evangelize them. Of course you should evangelize them. But we don't have close relationships with them because, as Corinthians says, light and darkness don't mix. So we must be very careful because as 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company corrupts good character. Or as Proverbs says it, you know, iron sharpens iron. So a friend sharpens the countenance of his friend. So we have to be careful. 
If, we, if you hang around with uh, that kind of a system for too long, you end up becoming like it. So we've looked at some negative aspects. So let's look at some positive aspects of the way of the godly. We find in verses 2 and 3 these positive aspects. We see, first of all, that a, a godly person saturated with God's Word saturated with God's Word. We see in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, that the godly actually delight in the Bible. They love the Bible. If you look at verse 2, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And Notice, by the way, it's not sinful here to have delights. <laughs> God, God is, is not some mean ogre that that wants to keep you from having fun and keeping you from enjoying stuff. No, that's a, that, that, is, that is an ungodly way of thinking. God wants you to, to delight in things, but He wants you delighting in the right things. So the question is, what is your delight in? You do delight in something, and probably many things, but what? Is it the right things? God says our delight ought to be in the Bible, in God's Word. So the person who knows genuine joy is someone who's going to read the Bible, somebody who's going to desire to be in God's Word and memorize it and study it and meditate upon it. So I ask you, do you truly desire to read your Bible every day? Do you desire that? If you don't, then... You need to pray for yourself. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to break your cold, dead heart and, and open it up to Him so that you love His law, as the psalmist said. Ask God to give you a hungry appetite for His truth that we find in the Scripture. Which, by the way, leads us to the second point, because we see here in verse 2 that the godly then meditate upon the Bible. See, it's not enough for you just to read it and not to you know maybe have your checklist hey here's my bible reading for this year i'm reading through the whole bible this year and today is let's see january the third check i read those verses for today set it aside and never think about it again the rest of the day that's not god's desire for you he wants you meditating upon the bible and so if we want to be godly then we must constantly set our minds on the truth of the Bible. That's the way God designed it for you. And notice, by the way, when the meditation takes place. Did you notice that? In verse 2, he says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates, how, how often? Day and night. Day and night. It's, it's not just a thing you do in the morning or just something you do before you, you go to bed. God wants you musing over, thinking His thoughts on a regular basis throughout the day. So it takes place throughout the day. Why should we do this? Because God wants you focusing on Him. He wants you loving Him. He wants you obeying Him. So focusing on Scripture then is going to reveal the glory of God. I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it in the Treasury of David. He says this, I quote, He is not under the law as a curse and condemnation, but he is in it 
and he delights to be in it as his rule of life. He delights, moreover, to meditate in it, to read it by day and think upon it by night. He takes a text and carries it with him all day long. And in the night watches when sleep forsakes his eyelids, he muses upon the word of God. In the day of his prosperity, he sings psalms out of the word of God. And in the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with promises out of the same book. End quote. You see the point? There's a difference between someone just reading and someone who actually meditates upon the Bible. Big difference. Not the same thing. So a godly meditates upon the Bible. And number three, the godly then dig into the Bible. They dig in. It's not just a surface thing where you're just mining the treasures on the surface. No, this person's digging in. If you look at verse 3, he's, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. This person's not a wild tree that just happens to grow up you know, wherever a, a seed might fall. No, this, this person, this godly person has been planted, firmly planted in a wonderful spot by God Himself. So the roots take, take deep root. It has plenty of water. It's a healthy tree. Of course, God's describing this, this tree to show us what, what you and I can be like. We can be this way. A healthy tree that's been planted by streams of water. Do you have that desire? Are you striving? Is that for your life? I hope you are. Dig into the Bible. And number four, the godly draw from the Bible. They draw from the Bible. Because they're not just planted here. But notice this tree is yielding its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. So the person who's delighting in God's instruction is going to be like a tree planted by streams of water that's going to draw its life and its nourishment, its sustenance from a stream. And where is it going to get that? It gets it from its roots. So the God-centered life drawing its spiritual vitality from God's Word. That's what's compared to the many streams. The word streams, by the way, is in the plural... It's actually in the plural uh, there in verse 3, which is why the ESV says planted by streams of water. It represents the abundant, overflowing supply of strength and sustaining grace conveyed in God's Word. And notice also that the godly set down deep roots into this reservoir that never runs dry like some streams do. This this one's never going to run dry. It's one that's always refreshing, always reviving. It's renewing, cleansing, satisfying everyone who draws from its strength. By the way, why do the godly do this? Why do they do it? Because they know that God's Word can sustain them. Do you believe that? That God's Word sustains you? Well, let's look at four results then that the Bible has on godly people. Number one, God's Word brings stability. God's Word's going to... Here's why you need to be firmly planted here. Because God's Word's going to bring stability in your life. You're going to be planted by the streams of water. Securely planted 
by many streams of water that never run dry. Always going to be plenty of water. Number two, God's Word brings productivity. It brings productivity because you're going to yield fruit. When you're in God's Word, where God wants you to be, you're going to bring forth fruit. It's a picture, by the way, of continual fruitfulness. It doesn't matter which season of life you're in, you will bear fruit. It doesn't matter if it's good times or bad times. This person's yielding fruit in its season, verse 3 says. Verse 3 also mentions that God's Word is going to bring constancy to you. The idea here is that all the godly person does is going to have eternal value. You're going to have lasting results because your leaf does not wither. And then, and then it mentions as well, number four, God's Word brings prosperity. This is, a, this is not a prosperity gospel, but, but God's Word is so powerful here that whatever the godly does will prosper. Godly people enjoy a spiritually enriched life. Godly life is the fullest life that is imaginable. Notice it's the end of verse 3. And all that he does, he prospers. That's the way of the godly. Let's move on to the second part, though. We see the way of the ungodly. The way of the unsaved. The, the one who's never put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is you, my friend. We see in verses 4 to 6. And so let me ask you this. Are the ungodly blessed? It says not so. If you look at verse 4, because it says the wicked are not so. They're not blessed. Are they happy? Not so. Are they successful? Not so. Are they fruitful? Not so. Oh, they might look successful. You probably know unsaved people, lost people who've never come to Christ. Outwardly, they may look successful, but they're not. They're not so. The ungodly actually do what God forbids, according to verse 1. They're walking in the counsel of the wicked. They're standing in the way of sinners. They're sitting in the seat of scoffers or, or mockers. And the result is a bad result. The unright, uh, Unlike the righteous, who are like a tree of life that's been planted by streams of water and has a leaf bearing fruit, the ungodly are like, they're going to be described here as chaff that the wind just blows away. So we see, first of all, the ungodly way here is that the ungodly are corrupted internally. Sorry, they're corrupted internally. Look at verse 4, because it says the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. They're like chaff. In other words, they're useless. Now, you might be agriculturally challenged here, because I dare say probably none of us have ground wheat with animals who are pulling heavy objects to extract the wheat from the chaff. And then probably none of you have stood on a hill throwing the, the wheat and the chaff up in the air, hoping that the wind blows away the chaff. And have you ever done that? Probably not, right? So we might be a little or agriculturally challenged. The idea here is that the chaff is useless. See, at Bible times there would be these threshing floors, and usually they would put them on, on a hill so that 
they would get the best use of the wind. And they would use their animals to pull heavy, heavy objects to extract the wheat, to extract the grain during harvest time. And you might get a pitchfork and you might put it under all that chaff and, the, and you would throw it up in the air and, the, and, and you'd hope that the wind would take the useless chaff away for you. And so then, then all you're left with is the grain, the good stuff, the edible stuff. That was the idea. And so God says, we don't want to be like that chaff. That's the way the wicked are. That's the way the unsaved are. These ungodly people are like chaff. They're useless. They're internally corrupted. And so then what they would do with that useless chaff is they would try to gather as much of it as they could and they would burn it, lest it somehow find its way back into the edible food. God says, also like chaff, these people are unstable they're unstable. They're, they're, they're able to be driven by the wind. And, and by the way, the imagery here is used to describe the ungodly and the wicked who are empty. They're void. They're futile, un, un, unsubstantial, shallow, worthless. And, and we see that here. And so verse 5 gives us the results of this way. If you look at verse 5, we see that the ungodly then are condemned judicially they're condemned judicially because it says in verse 5 that therefore because of because of that the wicked will not stand in the judgment so that's that's the first sub point is that they will not stand in the judgment in other words what god is saying here is they will not have god's acceptance when they stand before god on judgment day God is going to say, well, as Jesus said it, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to be exposed for what they really are. They will be justly condemned in their sin. They will be sentenced to the eternal flames of punishment in the lake of fire. That's what Jesus says. That's what the Bible says. That's a horrible thought. And I, I frankly, I don't like saying that. I don't enjoy saying that. But that's what God's Word says. The wicked will not stand, at least not righteously stand, in the judgment. And number two, they're not going to stand with the righteous either. They will not stand with the righteous. Notice verse 5, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. These corrupt sinners will not be allowed to remain with the righteous people. And by the way, how do you get righteous? Not through self-righteousness. It's not a righteousness of your own. The only way you can stand before God in a righteous state is because of Jesus. You must have Jesus' righteousness imputed to you. See, my friends, Jesus took your place on the cross. He bore your sin. He suffered God's wrath in your place. And then for all who believe in Him, God gives you Christ's righteousness. But these corrupt sinners are not going to be allowed to remain in the assembly of the righteous. They're going to be excluded from the joyful fellowship of all the saints. They're going to be revealed in that final judgment for who they really are as unworthy sinners who are rightly condemned by Jesus Christ 
and then they will be removed from God's presence forever. If you don't believe me, read the last two chapters of Revelation. Well, let's look at the very last verse. Verse 6 summarizes the two ways of life for us. The two ways of life. We see the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, or as I'm preferring to say it, you have the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly. It's clear, my friends. Uh, We really can't argue with this unless we want to take it up with God because God says in verse 6 that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the ungodly are damned eternally. It's eternal destruction. Well, let me just mention the good news first because we see that the righteous prosper. According to verse 6, they prosper. What does this verse mean, by the way? Well, here's what one commentator wrote. Quote, It means far more than that he is informed about their ways. Rather, God has a personal, intimate relationship with the godly and is involved with them in order to guard, guide, and grace them. End quote. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful truth. It, it, he, just, he doesn't just know facts about you. He knows much more than that. It's a glorious thing to think about. But then on the other hand, we have the wicked. God says the wicked will perish. And, and this is horrible news. It's a horrible statement. This truth should grip our hearts, really, as you think about this. So let me say this, that, that the word perish here, it means to die. Perish means to undergo destruction. It, it's not just an annihilation like some people think. Uh, that wouldn't be so bad, just annihilated. You know, just die and that's it. But this is far worse than that. It has the idea of, of a destruction after the physical death. It was, by the way, never used of a destruction that led into complete annihilation. God doesn't use the word that way. But it, it's speaking of something that's unending. It's eternal destruction. Something that never ceases. And here's what I'm trying to say in case you don't get this, that the wicked, God says, will suffer relentless torment torment in a real place. And I don't want any of you to go there. It's real. And so the fact that I'm up here speaking this very uncomfortable message, hopefully you, you see my heart is a heart of love for you, a heart of concern for you. I don't want you to go here. The Bible says hell's real, and that God has a place called the Lake of Fire, a place originally that was created for Satan and the demons. But all who reject Jesus Christ, the Bible says, will go there. The wicked will always be there, forever suffering the eternal wrath of God, never finding relief from God's just vengeance upon them. And by the way, that's what they deserve. By the way, that's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. And the only way I am able to escape that, the only way that I will escape that is by God's grace. Because of Jesus. I deserve to spend eternity in a lake of fire, and so do you. The good news is we don't have to go there. Even though we deserve eternal death in this lake of fire, we don't have to go there because God is gracious. He's given us what we don't deserve in His Son. He provided... The only way of salvation, 
And so, my friends, we, we have to plead for grace, then, don't we? By the way, what is grace? It's God's unmerited favor. In other words, you don't merit it, you don't earn it. There, there, there's no way possible you could do enough good works to earn His unmerited favor. So, grace is, a, in other words, receiving what we don't deserve. None of us deserve the greatest gift, of course, was God's Son, Jesus Christ, the one who became the substitute for us, who absorbed God's wrath, lived the perfect life, and paid the penalty for every Christian's sin. And so, my friend, if you're a non-Christian, an unbeliever, what you need to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ alone in order to avoid perishing in the lake of fire. And if you are a Christian, then you need to trust in Jesus Christ too. You need to continually trust in Jesus Christ because He is the one who is keeping you. So without Him, the Bible says, you can do nothing. So I ask you, my friend, which way are you going? Which road are you on? Are you on the way of the godly or the way of the ungodly? Every person needs to ask this soul-searching question. It's 2016. What a great question to start the year with. Which way are you going? Have you entered through the narrow gate that leads to life, eternal life? Or are you traveling on this wide road, this broad road that's headed to destruction? And so if you've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, then let me ask you, I have a few questions that might really help you determine the genuineness of your profession. You understand it's not enough to profess faith in Christ. Even Jesus said in Matthew 7 that many will say, Lord, Lord, look at all these things we've done for you. And Jesus is going to tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. So it's not enough to make a profession of faith. Is it genuine? Well, here's some heart-searching questions. Number one, is there clear evidence of a transformed life that authenticate, authenticates the claim? When you read the book of James, James shows you what, what does a mature spiritual life look like? It's not a dead faith, it's a living faith. It's alive. Number two, are you experiencing the blessedness of God's favor? Three, are you living a separated life distinct from the beliefs and behavior of the ungodly? Let me put it to you this way. If you look, talk, act, and think like this world system, could it be that you're a part of this world system? Probably. If you're not acting, thinking, talking like light and salt that Jesus describes in Matthew 5, then you're probably not light and salt. Another question to think about. Are you living a separated life? Sorry, I already did that one. Last one. Have you made that break from the world? Are you delighting in the law of the Lord? These are, these are questions that are going to reveal, help you reveal, I should say, which path you're on. Well, many people today will point to some mystical experience or some emotional feeling for their validity of conversion. 
for their salvation. I mean, my wife was told for a long time, oh, you prayed a prayer when you were a little child. So you're a Christian. You're on your way to heaven because you prayed a prayer. And then when she got to 12 years old, she's like, I don't remember any of that. I'm putting, what am I putting my faith in? I'm putting my faith in my parents telling me I prayed a prayer. What kind of a faith is that? That's the wrong object of faith. And so when she was 12 years old, she said, I'm done with that object of faith. My object of faith is now going to be Jesus Christ. She had a false profession of faith. There's a lot of people like that. A lot of people like that. They have mystical feelings, emotional experiences. We have to look for the fruit of a changed life. Jesus said we're to be fruit inspectors. Fruit is the test of our salvation. Some of the things we find throughout Scripture, here's just a little example. Uh, the Bible talks about things like personal holiness, Christ-like character, good works, stewardship, and do you praise God? The fruit of your lips is praising God. That's what a true believer does, those sort of things. doesn't mean those things save you. They're just showing that what's inside you is real. It's genuine. I hope you understand that. Anyway, so let me ask you, do you have the fruit of a changed life? Which path are you on? So you might then ask, well, how does one find this path in life in order to enter it? If it's narrow and few be find it, and uh, well, you know, and and if even if, if I'm on this road, what map ensures that I'm not going to get lost? <laughs> well, let me tell you this: Psalm one is helpful. Psalm one is part of the 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 map, if you will, that'll help guide you. It gives us a warning. So listen closely, my friends. The warning is this: hear and do. You have to hear God's Word and do it. You have to delight in the law, meditate on it, and then you act upon it. It's not enough to just hear it. Not enough to hear it. You have to meditate and then act upon it. So, let, in other words, let me put it this way. Let what you hear and what you read and what you study so affect your life, so permeate your entire being that... This life of God actually takes up residence within you and is lived out through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then, then you'll know. <laughs> and as you live it out, it's amazing the, the, the peace of God that comes that passes all understanding and the assurance that God gives as you're hearing and doing. The Bible says, according to Psalm chapter 1 here, that this kind of a person is blessed, is truly blessed. This kind of a person is, is happy, has this abundant joy overflowing, even in the midst of a world that is very dark. You, you might have trials, you will go through trials, you will have suffering and persecution and so forth, but you can be this kind of a person who is truly blessed. Are you? Are you this blessed person? The blessed person is the one who's on the path of the godly. My friend, if you're not on that path, you can be. Through Jesus Christ, the one who's 
already walked the path for you, and He says, come follow Me. Will you do that today? My Christian friend, let's walk together on this path. The narrow path. The hard road that leads to eternal life. Jesus Christ, the captain of our soul, is there. He's waiting for us at the end of this long, hard road. It might be hard now, but there's a glorious day yet to come. Your best life is in the future. So don't live for now. Set your affection on on Him. Look to Him. Run the race looking to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith. So my friend, which way are you on? Let's pray.